just a quick note. On this episode, we discuss the community lifelines, and we reference a few earlier episodes. If you're interested, we invite you to listen back to last week's episode, episode 31, on the National Response Framework update, as well as another episode, which was a special agency update from July 2018 on the 2017 Hurricane After Action Report. I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. A community lifeline enables the continuous operation of business and government functions and is critical to human health and safety or economic security. The lifeline's concept reframes incident information to provide decision makers with impact statements and root causes and is intended to maximize the effectiveness of federally supported, state-managed, and locally executed response. FEMA recently released the Community Lifeline's Implementation Toolkit which provides all of our partners with the information and resources to understand lifelines, coordinate with entities using lifelines, and serve as basic guidance for how to implement the lifelines construct during an incident response. On this episode, we talked to Jeremy Greenberg from FEMA's Response Directorate about the lifelines concept and how the toolkit will be used to support all units of government in disaster responses. Jeremy Greenberg, welcome back to the FEMA podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here again. All right. So the idea of the community lifelines, which we're going to talk about today, um, it's not entirely new to the to the podcast. We've talked about it on previous episodes um, discussing the 2017 After Action Report. We talked about it uh, numerous times with uh, Administrator Long. And recently, we talked about it with you when we discussed the National Response Framework. But the lifelines concept has sort of always been woven into these discussions. Um, the concept is so important, it seems, that it, going forward, uh, it's going to be important for all of us as emergency managers to drill down and understand what the lifelines really are and what they can mean to emergency management. So before we go into um, the specific lifelines, how about you talk to me about the concept of the lifelines? Where did it originate from? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, hopefully everybody's had an opportunity to at least be exposed a little bit to the the lifeline construct. And I think one of the most compelling uh, reasons why it's worked so well in the emergency management community uh, so far is that it's not dissimilar from the basic concepts of emergency management to look across a semi-chaotic situation where people are in need and and bucket our response and say, how do we take uh, available resources and push them out to a community in in an organized way? The other thing that it does is it gives us a, a common understanding of desired end states, uh, at least in the response phase of the incident. Where where do we all want to focus our efforts, and from there, how we set our priorities? So I, as I look down on some of the materials that we've started to pull together to explain to the emergency management community the lifelines, um, there are seven specific lifelines. Um, can you talk a little bit about which the what those seven are? Sure. And I, I can't go out and talk about lifelines without saying that at a, these are our minimum uh, set of criteria for lifelines. We know that uh, throughout the, the research and then certainly the practical application, uh, one, not every incident is going to affect each of these seven lifelines and their supporting components. Um, and two, that a local jurisdiction may have something beyond these seven uh, that, that is a critical priority. So what we did was we looked at you know the history of disasters, not just the 2017 and 18 seasons, and said, okay, what are the key 
functional areas uh, that are generally unstable uh, in a response. And and we looked, and, and this is where we came across or came up with these seven. And as, as you've seen in the material, and, and hopefully the other listeners have looked at it, each of these seven lifelines have supporting components underneath them or subsets. And those are just likely bucketing uh, of, of uh, subcategories against these seven. And the other thing to consider is, you know, each of these are interrelated. Uh, so, so communications as sort of an enabling function or power is not going to be standalone, just as transportation generally is going to uh, literally drive uh, how people are going to get to and fro uh, some of these other locations, such as hospitals and police stations uh, and, and uh, power plants. So each of these are interrelated. Each of them are supported by a series of components. Okay, so let's talk about each the seven um, community lifelines that at least are identified now, um, safety and security, food, water, and sheltering, health and medical, energy, and that includes power and fuel, um, communications, transportation, and hazardous material. Okay, so let's talk about transportation and what are the subcomponents there? Sure. So when you think about transportation, there's a, a logical breakdown. People think planes, trains, and automobiles, right? It's easy to think about uh, maybe we don't always assume uh, the maritime domain and then the split on rail between transit, right? How we get back and forth, mass transit uh, versus uh, rail, think Amtrak or cargo cargo rail. Um, and then even pipeline is included in the transportation uh, components because uh, that's how the Department of Transportation regulates the movement of material through a pipeline, but also how we move from point A to point B. So transportation, overall lifeline, uh, the six components underneath it, and then uh, and that includes everything from aviation to rail to uh, the maritime domain. And then each of these have a next layer underneath it, which are, we call them the essential elements of information, but really these are the, these are the key questions that you want to know uh, to paint a picture about what the transportation network looks like. It's easy to say, hey, can I get from this city to that city? The answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no, but but why? Is it because the roadway is out, because the critical bridge is out, or because you know the metro isn't working that day? Uh, so that's how, how the lifelines are set up. And then each of the seven have the similar uh, series of components underneath them and then uh, subcomponents underneath that that help, like I said, paint that picture or give you context to what's going on. Um, so let's go back just a little bit and talk about the development process. Um, I know that the 2017 hurricanes played a big role, but um, how you spoke a little bit about this, but how did we ultimately identify these seven lifelines? I suppose potentially more, right? But how did we come to these seven? So the, there were many great activities and actions being taken during the 2017 season by the by a whole government, truly public, private, federal, state, local tribal territorial partners. But one of the challenges that we had overall was understanding what action was affecting what outcome uh, and maybe where their shortfalls were related to that. So we we looked across uh, not just, as I said, the 17 season, but uh, other areas, just sort of the history of emergency management and said, what are the key capabilities? Uh, and even looked at the, the core capabilities list that was originally designed um, back during the national preparedness days and said, what, what do we really need to have in a community to bring stability? I think it's critical to know that this is not implying restoration, right? We're not, we understand that the conditions on the ground are still gonna be uh, adversely affecting survivors. This is all about how are we stabilizing it? How are we saying that everybody has a shelter over their head, food and, and water in their body, uh, bathroom to use and, and ability to move around, but it is not full restoration. So that's sort of where we looked across and said, okay, what are those seven, sort of the hierarchy of needs, right? For a community and, and what you bring about. 
And then we brought in uh, subject matter ex- experts from each department and agency, uh, as well as regional partners, and said, okay, you know, there's likely connectivity. So U.S. Department of Transportation, look at transportation. Federal communications folks looked, look at communication, health and human services, look at health and medical across, and said, hey, c- help us develop these components. And then one of the cool parts is we took those groups of, of uh, experts and we rotated them around, right? We took them out of their comfort zone and said, okay, hey, uh, police officers who would look at safety and security, go over and look at food, water, shelter, and look for components or things that you might affect positively or negatively, and then rotated that group. So we spent about a week going through this to really validate uh, what we thought were the right answers. And then uh, traditionally in, in FEMA approach, we like to exercise things over and over and over before we roll it out. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we had a very busy 18 season as well. So we took our vision and, and smashed it against reality over and over. Right? We had Hurricane Florence and Michael, Actually, Hurricane Lane out in the Pacific was the first one uh, where we used lifeline construct. Then we had the East Coast responses, then the wildfires, and then a no-notice earthquake up in Alaska. And and using all of these as test beds, we uh, feel comfortable that we validated that these seven are, are the right approach to start with. So let's talk about like Hurricane Lane. You know, using it for the first time there. What? Um, how did that application go? So first and foremost, we had to to push out a message that the lifeline construct is going to serve two primary purposes. One, it's going to allow us to gain, maintain, and communicate situational awareness, right? So a very textbook answer, but tell me what's going on. Tell me why it's important and, and why do you care about it? Therefore, why should I care about it? And then two, it helps operational prioritization. So think about Hurricane Lane, right? It's affecting the Pacific uh, area of responsibility. It's far away. You have to fly or, or sail everything that goes there. So no truer uh, operation it needs priorities than something that's outside the continental United States because it, it takes a little while to get there. So we rolled it out. Uh, and the good news is Lane obviously didn't have a significant impact uh, out in Hawaii, but the the opportunity for us to, to field test the lifeline construct was great. So we looked, we had some minor impacts to transportation, some minor impacts to communications, and then food, water, shelter. So it gave, I think, the team a, a level of confidence that the lifeline construct was new but could easily be uh, digestible in the NRCC and, and the Regional Response Coordination Center uh, and then out in the field. So first uh, first test worked well. And then we went into uh, Hurricane Florence, Hurricane Michael, um, both affecting Region 4, different states. And uh, each time we, we did it, we learned something new. Uh, I think one of the biggest uh, issues is people got really fascinated by the color coding uh, and, and what that meant. But really what we, were, what we were trying to drive home, and this really worked, was tell me the status, right? Is something open, closed, or, or some other category? And then tell me the impact behind that. Why does that matter? And tell me a story. If you've read uh, any of the senior leadership briefings we've had in the past, they're cumbersome and they have a lot of data in it but it doesn't give you any information, right? Tell me the status, tell me the impact, and then tell me what you're gonna do about it. And that's really uh, been our experience using Lifeline Construct. So you gave an example uh, another time where you said, you know, there could be, um, uh, the data says that there's 5,000 roads that are in, um, out of operation, uh, but the next day there's 4,999 roads. Um, that last, mo- or 4,999 miles of roads, but that last mile is, say, the most important thing. It's the one way to access the power plant. So that narrative becomes a really important piece of t- making determinations about how you apply resources. That's absolutely right. So one of the, the uh, ease of communication uh, monikers that we've been using, you'll see this throughout the toolkit, is we talk about status, uh, 
status impact and action or what, so what, now what? And the, the reason why we wanted to come up with just e an easy way to talk about this is people say, hey, so why is this new? Why should I follow it? And if you can train people to speak in the same sort of parlance uh, when we're doing a, a multi-state response, you can start to compare and contrast the situation. So I think that impact and status or what and so what is probably the best uh, byproduct or out desired outcome of the Lifeline Toolkit because people are reporting and they're telling a story. They're not just saying that something is open or closed. Or, you know, they, they give you the context, hey, there's a reroute uh, in place where this airport's not open, but you can divert to an airport that's 10 miles away and still get in uh, and support the survivor. So that's probably the most critical takeaway that we've seen so far. Okay, so the Lifeline's construct is going to be included in the National Response Framework rewrite. Um, and so then it will be reflected in the national approach to responding to emergencies. So how does this toolkit um, that's going to be available on our website uh, help communities understand lifelines in a way that leads to the successful implementation in their communities? So it, the toolkit is not designed as a standalone document. So f start from the beginning, right? We've been out talking to state emergency management directors, uh, state uh, elected officials, and local uh, EM folks and, and organizations, NEMA and alike, to say, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve, right? We're trying to achieve an, a, a better way of communicating what the problem sets are and what we're doing to solve them. So we've gone out, had these conversations past six, eight, ten months, and then one of the requests was, how do I get a, a, a toolkit, right? A comprehensive package that I can take and, and look at myself and understand it. So broken down into three big parts, sort of the history of lifelines and what they are, because uh, we felt uh, it was important to explain to people where it came from, uh, how it's similar to other uh, constructs that we're using, and then where we're advancing the, the game of emergency management. Uh, the second part is implementation. So how do you use it? Not only in the response phase, but we also have a section there about planning. So we look uh, to our to our partners to use this to better gauge how we write our plans and then how we go into our response operations. And then the last part, which seems a little bit uh, bureaucratic, but is, is probably the most helpful, is actually the templates and icons. So uh, people are familiar with this. They look at the, at the graphics and they say, hey, those are great. How do I build them into my products? And uh, working with you know, the external affairs office and, and some of the graphic designers, uh, Tommy Tyler, who I, I have to absolutely thank because she's been single-handedly driving uh, the development of, of these graphics. Get the graphics in the hand of the user. Uh, just recently, I was out in a, in a state EOC, and uh, they asked, hey, can I get these templates because I want to modify my reports? And the whole idea is if everything nests from the local level down on, you know, up to the state level, up to the county, up to the state, and then up, up to us, if we're truly looking in that federally supported capacity, then we can compare and contrast, figure out where the requirements are, and, and push out the resources in a not only effective but efficient way as well. Given the fact that this is going to be applied to the national approach to responding to emergencies, um, how do you um, really envision the lifelines construct being utilized by states? Uh, over the past year, uh, we've had nine separate examples in uh, 11 different states uh, that have embraced the lifeline construct. And I'd say we have had some fantastic state partners who have looked at it and said, this sounds about right. Uh, can you help me out a little bit, explain some of the components and some of the details? But overall, uh, each of the state directors have embraced this and been able to report up uh, to to Brock and, and the ORR leadership team, hey, this is where we are uh, in the incident. Very quick, back of the napkin, here's what my lifelines look like. And when you start to hear that in the early phase of the incident, it doesn't mean that the incident's any better or worse, but it gives you a sense of, of comfort that 
the state director understands each of the issues and can start to articulate what his or her priorities are going to be. And when we uh, ran at least some of the hurricanes that were multi-region, multi-state, it gave us an opportunity to compare and contrast not only the conditions on the ground, but the capability that's already there. So we started to look and think about where we needed to apply some federal resources to help bring stability to those communities. So it seems like the lifelines concept, obviously, you know, we've developed it, FEMA has developed it um, in consultation with a lot of experts. But do you see, um, even drilling down to the county um, or even the states, do you see them utilizing this in events that don't require federal support? We hope so. Uh, so anecdotally, I know that uh, that several states have embraced this. Uh, I say that because I've been in their state EOCs. Uh, just the other day, I was up in, in Alaska in the State Emergency Operations Center, and they were really excited to show us the products that they had developed um, and talking using NEMA as sort of a baseline uh, to get out to some of the states. And I know we have a few exercises coming up that the, the host states are already uh, developing templates and icons for reporting tools and the operational prioritization. So I know people are, are using it. Um, how, whether or not they use it if there's no federal assistance anticipated, I think we go back to basic NIMS and ICS principles that you want it to be expandable and flexible, but use it as a most common denominator. So while we can't implore states or local jurisdictions to use the lifeline construct in a, you know, a, a single county flood, uh, we hope that they will uh, for two reasons. One, we believe the construct is right uh, in the emergency management community. But two, if that situation does expand out and does require additional assistance either at the state level or the federal level, uh, that we see a common approach that's being used from the inception of the incident and just makes federal support that much easier to plug in as needed. When we're developing our plans and having sort of an understanding of what stabilization means, uh, that's pretty powerful in developing better plans. So the Lifelines also has, you talked a little bit about how it affects planning, but can you talk a little bit more about like now that we have the ability to understand um, a desired outcome when we're talking about response, how does that drive better planning? This is an absolutely useful tool in uh, response operations. But what we're starting to see, and, and we knew this going in, we were hoping for this, is that it's a it's a benefit to the planning phase as well and the overall preparedness phase. So very specifically, <clears throat> as we're updating the all hazards plan that each of the regions and the states are using, we're identifying what the stabilization targets are uh, for each of the seven lifelines. And that's forcing the discussion with a state and local partner to say, hey, you're gonna write a plan and it's going to be based on a series of assumptions, but these are the assumptions. What does stable look like to you, to your community? Because as smart as we are here at FEMA headquarters, we're not going to know the independent issues that are faced at the region and certainly at the state level. So this is the, the opportunity for a state director and his or her team to say, this is what it looks like for me. Break, we have an incident, we'll pull the plan out. And our FCO and the IMAT teams will go in and say, okay, based on your plan, this is what stability looks like based on the series of assumptions. Do we need to modify it, right? Are, are you comfortable with where it is? And instead of all of us going in all the time and looking at you know, life-saving, life-sustaining property preservation, we can start to look at desired end states for response. So uh, it'll neatly tie these uh, each of these planning products back into our response operations. So it'll just take a little bit of time as we go through that process. So one of the, one of the things I was curious about is the inner uh, play with like say NIMS and some of the ways that we are already organized to respond. So how does the lifelines affect any of that? It's a great question. I've been out to to almost all ten of the FEMA regions in a variety of different states, and I get asked you know some standard questions. One is how does this work with NIMS and core capabilities? So. 
first and foremost, the lifeline uh, construct, the development of lifelines and the implementation, it doesn't affect the ways in which we approach emergency management. What I mean by that is emergency support functions or whatever the corollary is at the state or local level don't change. Uh, Sector-specific agencies coming out of DHS and and working with the private sector community, they don't change. Uh, Recovery support functions or any other way that we organize ourselves it doesn't change. Uh, what we're looking at is those end states, right? And that's really what we're trying to target and talk about that that prioritization. Um, by way of, of core capabilities and NIMS and some of the other products that, that FEMA has pushed and, and state and locals have embraced, that's all still there. Uh, you'll see in the toolkit uh, there's a crosswalk between um, the lifelines and the core capabilities, which we did just to show that, that these things are interrelated, but I think the the most important thing for someone to understand is that every emergency support function or department and agency can help bring stability to a lifeline. And what I mean by that is, let's say that uh, a hospital is unable to accept patients, right? That's an impact statement that we're talking about before. And they'll tell us now the status of that. So we're starting to see people embracing that, but what it really gets to is thinking about root cause and what the real problem is. You know, is that hospital not available to take patients because they don't have power? Okay, so we look to our power partners. They can't take patients because they don't have fuel in their generator, so look to your fuel partners. Maybe they don't have communications and they can't call for a refill, so look across the communication sector, or maybe they were able to call, but the roadway had debris on it, so it's a transportation issue. So it really drives through not only that status and impact, but that root cause analysis, tell me what my real problem is, and here's what either you're doing or you need me to do to help fix it. And then that information then feeds into the color coding um, that everybody really sometimes gets drawn into. But um, give me an example of in that hospital situation, what might drive a, a red, yellow, green, uh, those indicators? So uh, a couple things on the colors, uh, and then I'll answer your question. So first, there, there are four colors, and we didn't do a very good job in the rollout of time about our fourth color, which is gray. And gray is an unknown status. Uh, that was critical for us during the Alaska earthquake to be able to say, hey, we know that we don't know, and it's a holding statement, but most importantly, when are you going to know? Is it you know two minutes, two hours, or two days? Because sometimes assessments take a while. And that's n- not only a management of expectations, but it's also a communication tool to say, I know that I have to go look at this and I owe you an answer on it. So so four colors, uh, red, yellow, gray, and green, red, yellow, green, and gray uh, to talk about uh, the status and impact of a lifeline. What we, uh, one of the benefits of the color codes is it gives you a quick snapshot. But just like any product that you use uh, a, a color code or stars or anything to indicate, it's the supplemental information beneath it that's really telling the story, right? So uh, the, the color codes were designed to give an upfront view, uh, subjective view from the state to say, hey, in the impacted part of my state or territory, this is what I think is going on. And it's about degrees of severity. Uh, so think about green as either everything is fine, the lifeline was not impacted, or there are some impacts, but I'm anticipating my, my requirements, I'm, I'm resourcing them appropriately, and I'm managing it. It doesn't mean the conditions are, are perfect, right? You have an ad hoc approach or, or some minimal standard set up. Increase to yellow is that there are some significant impacts to the lifelines and that we've taken those impacts, we've developed some courses of action, we know what we're going to do about it, but there's some limiting factors. Maybe it's time, maybe it's delivery of a team or resource or some commodity, um, but we, we're, we know what the problem is and we, we have some solution in place for it, we just can't get there right now. And then red is that varying degree of severity. It's either, you know, the limiting factor is 
really something that we want to call out uh, by way of example. It's the resources needed to repair this are you know significant amount of time away. We, no marker on it, but you know, that 72-hour mark is a, a timeline that we like to look at. Or the impacts are so significant that maybe we can't develop a course of action right now. It doesn't mean we're going to leave it in despair, but it's so significant that we need to bring in more uh, more people to look at it and sort of analyze it and come up with a course of action to, to bring stability to it. So that's sort of the color scheme, but I have to emphasize that we, we're using that as an indicator tool, but think of it just like any other review. Give the supplemental information, tell the story, and you know show the root cause analysis and what action you're taking behind it to really convey what the problem is. Okay, so if we apply it to like the hypothetical in the hospital where say for instance um, the hospital is not accepting patients because uh, they don't they lack power right how would we color code that well it depends on the the impact statement behind it right so if if the hospital it doesn't matter where we are if that hospital is the level the only level one trauma center in you know 40 square miles and there's no other way to do any sort of decompression of those hospitals or or, or diversion uh, for patients you know, that's a pretty critical issue uh, I would ask the question of, okay, why is it not accepting patients and what course of action do we have uh, to bring it back online? That'll sort of separate between, uh, differentiate between yellow and red. But maybe, hey, it's a it's a community hospital and there's actually a level one trauma center that's five miles away and there's no impact to survivor uh, services. You just divert five more miles and the ambulances have a clear roadway and everything's fine. So it really, it's it's starting to drive that the impact statements and that communication about not just telling me something's open or closed, but what's the story behind it? So now that we know which are the, what are those four colors, that's not like a permanent label. That's not something where once we've determined that it's a green, that it will always be green. Yeah, absolutely critical to understand that we have to reassess uh, each of these lifelines. And just like in, in medical care, you reassess a critical patient every five minutes and a stable patient every 10 minutes. If things look green, um, you know, look through each operational period and look to when you want to reassess uh, the status of the lifelines, because there are factors, some controllable, some uncontrollable, that may influence uh, red going to green, green going to red. So, you know, something becoming more stable or less stable. The example that, that we use uh, when we're talking about this is food, water, shelter. If a shelter has uh, below capacity uh, population, they have food coming into the shelter and they have water in the shelter. For that set period of time, they're stable, they're green, uh, and everybody's fine. Understanding that there's a supply chain that supports these shelters, and if that gets disrupted and the additional food doesn't come in or additional water doesn't come in, they'll quickly find themselves into a yellow or red capacity. So we want people to know it's it's about the, the capability, not the condition, right? The condition on the ground is going to be bad, but it's about how you provide these services to a survivor, and two, to constantly reassess to ensure that we're painting that accurate picture. It's almost like this is like the innate way of thinking about approaching a solution to a problem. It's just putting it down into a sort of like an it's organization. Exactly right. Okay. It, it, it is it is emergency management, right? Bring calmness to chaos and doing some problem solving, looking at the puzzle pieces mm-hmm. and putting it together in an intelligent way. I, I know analogies are bad sometimes, but talk about like a Rubik's Cube. And you know that you can twist everything and line up one color but on the other sides, everything's sort of still discombobulated. Yeah. So you look and say, okay, what, which one of these lifelines do I want to bring up first? And what are the secondary and tertiary impacts to another lifeline? Everybody's, oh, if you always bring power up, you're good to go. Okay, yeah. But arguably, if you have power up, you have uh, uh, generators running, but no fuel in those generators, and you don't have a transportation loop to refuel those generators, then you're only temporarily bringing power back up. Yeah. So it, and it, it works across the, the, the board each way. Now that we're rolling out this uh, state 
state and local uh, tribal and territorial toolkit, uh, what would our state, local, and non-governmental partners, which are vital in almost every response that FEMA is going to be involved in, uh, need to do to link with FEMA on how to understand and stabilize uh, these lifeline? I think uh, two big asks of our state partners. Uh, one, if you understand the sort of ease of communication that we're looking at, so status, impact, action, limiting factors, what, so what, now what, without what. And it's, it's just a, an easy way to think about how you're briefing, how you're communicating, and how you're articulating what your challenges are. Um, but particularly the status and impact, which we talked a lot about, but that action, what are you doing at the state and local level and what do you need the federal government or a private partner to do? And then limiting factors that without what section, what's stopping you from getting there? If it's just time, you don't want the federal government to take an action. Uh, if it's something more than that, then communicate that. So understand the status impact action limiting factors. And then the second part is really understanding why we're using this approach. As we talked earlier, uh, this is not dissimilar from things that we've done in the past, but really driving home the concepts of root cause analysis, interdependencies, and prioritization. And prioritization not just being about urgency and needing it right now, but sequencing. How are you going to use it when? Uh, if it gets delayed, what are the impacts of it? So if we really understand the, the, the situational awareness side, right, that uh, game maintain and communicate your problems, and then the operational prioritization to understand the root cause and the interdependencies and the priorities, those are probably the, the two key things that we need from our state partners. And then lastly, uh, feedback. Like I said, we've used this nine separate times in a variety of different states, but if it's not working somewhere or someone has a challenge or a better idea, I mean, we've got a lot of smart people that put this all together, but uh, we certainly don't have the monopoly on all the smart ideas. So if there's something out there that uh, can make this even better, uh, some open, open dialogue and feedback from everybody that's using it. FEMA is taking your feedback and comments about the Lifelines concept and toolkit. If you have thoughts that you'd like to share, send an email to lifelines at fema.dhs.gov. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.